Please turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 27. We are drawing near to the very end of the book of Acts. We've been in Acts for, I guess, around a year and a half now, and we have made our way through it uh, verse by verse, and now we are uh, heading to the last set of stories before the very end of the book, and Paul is on his way to Rome as a prisoner to stand before Caesar for accusations of crimes he never actually committed. If you've read this uh, chapter before, you'll know how gripping of a narrative it certainly is, and uh, this is the shipwreck on their way through the Mediterranean Sea. Instead of reading the whole passage at the front, I'm going to read it as we go so that the drama of the story sort of stays with us as we move uh, forward. And uh, for the uh, message today, uh, I have titled the message, Nine Lessons on Being a Light in the Storm. This is going to have a similar format to what I did last Sunday, but nine lessons on being a light in the storm. And just for your sake, I've boiled them down to one word each. Okay, so <laughs> nine, nine lessons on being a light in the storm. I'm just going to read through them really quickly, and then we'll work through them point by point. So, Paul is, and then we've got nine words. Paul is, number one, friendly. Number two, trustworthy. Number three, wise. Number four, storm-tossed. Number five, bold. Number six, trusting. Number seven, active. Number eight, exemplary. And number nine, owned. I trust you have them all written down perfectly right now. So we will work through those uh, one at a time as we go forward. And uh, we will go ahead and begin the passage. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And our first point is that Paul is friendly. I'll explain what I mean as we go. So let's read the first three verses. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul to some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So when I say Paul is friendly, that's me trying to boil it down to one word. But Paul was clearly, he clearly had many uh, godly, Christ-centered friendships. And just to to see it here, the, the very first sentence of the chapter, you see that wonderful word, we, return to the book of Acts. Do you remember the word we in the book of Acts, the word us? Why is that word so significant? Because who's writing? Luke, right? The beloved physician who wrote the gospel of Luke and then part two, the book of Acts. And there are certain scenes where Luke is an eyewitness himself. And we know from earlier chapters, if you were to look back uh, in chapters uh, 20 and 21 and 22, we know that Luke traveled with Paul to Jerusalem. Remember, Paul then gets put in chains. And there's two years where Paul is chained near Jerusalem in Caesarea, right? On the Mediterranean coast. Remember all this? And for those two years, we don't know where Luke was. We get zero information about where Luke was. But we know when Paul came to Judea, Luke came with him because he says, we made it to Jerusalem. And then we know two years later, after Paul's been imprisoned there, two years later, we get on the boat with Paul and leave. So Luke came with Paul to Judea and left two years later with Paul from Judea. It's only, okay, I'm I'm just going to be up up front with you. This is total speculation, so don't take this to the bank, okay? This is not in the Bible. I'm just this educated guess. I just am making a guess here. 
Luke is writing these two volumes, Luke and Acts, and we are told that he was involved with eyewitnesses, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It speaks about how he did a lot of research for this. Here he has two years in the place where Jesus grew up and the place where Jesus was crucified. He's got nowhere to go with Paul because Paul is chained up in Caesarea. And so for two years, we don't know, but it is very likely that this is a time in which Luke would have done a lot of research for his gospel and for the book of Acts because he could interview eyewitnesses firsthand right there, and he had lots of time to do that. So Paul's friend Luke is there. His other friend mentioned in verse 2 is Aristarchus. Now, you may know Aristarchus. In chapter 19, do you remember the Ephesian riot in that amphitheater in Ephesus? Aristarchus is one of the poor guys that got dragged into that whole mess, and he survived. He made it through. In chapter 20, he comes with Paul to Judea, and he also leaves with Paul from Judea, and he makes two more appearances in the Bible. In Colossians 4, uh, he makes an appearance. Listen to this. Paul writing just a year or two later in prison in Rome, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So remember Mark is back with Paul. And then he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So Colossians and Philemon both mention Luke and Aristarchus being with Paul in prison. And uh, so they clearly stayed with Paul over the next couple of years. So Paul had close friends who he could count on, even though he wore chains. And he also had this church in Sidon who he was allowed to spend some time with. Now I'm going to move to point number two, which is Paul was trustworthy. Look back at verse three. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now, you have to understand, a Roman centurion, if he loses track of you, he would forfeit his own life. So, he's not taking any chances. I'm sure he probably even sent a soldier with Paul. I don't think he just let Paul wander off the boat, but he's probably sent a soldier with Paul. But Paul still was enabled to leave the ship when it was in port, and he was able to go and speak to members of this church in Sidon and to be cared for by them. This only could have happened if Paul had proven himself trustworthy so far to this centurion. And let me put a a map up on the screen just so you can follow along today with where we are. You can see at the bottom right-hand corner uh, where Paul begins his journey. You can see uh, down here in the, in the red, uh, I've, I've lost, oh, well, there you go. That, that's actually a different slide, but if you want to look at this slide as well, uh, this right here will confuse you if you look at it long enough. If you're into geography, you're going to start getting very puzzled very quickly. S- someone with way too much time on their hand took the Mediterranean Sea and placed it on a map of the United States. Hang on. We can't leave that behind too quickly. So, for, for your own uh, sake here, imagine Paul is leaving on the North and South Carolina border. <laughs> he is going to make his way to central Nebraska. Okay, that's where he's going. And the journey there takes way too long. It actually takes months. But Paul's plan is to go, just to give you a sense of the distance he's traveling here, over a thousand miles, and uh, going by boat during a stormy time of the year. And um, so, I'm going to zoom in now to a real map. So, don't go to your geography class and do anything right now. You will fail every test. This is the real map here. And uh, Paul is leaving here. They, they land in the port at Sidon. And that's where the church is, right here in Sidon. So, that's where Paul is going to spend a little bit of time. And then they're going to leave again, and they're going to head up north. The, the, the ship they're on right now is a very small, a much smaller boat than they're going to get on in a moment. These smaller boats would hug the coastline. Okay, today ships will just go out into the middle of the sea. That was much more dangerous. They didn't have the kind of navigation and technology that we have. So they would hug the coastline. They're going to head up north to try to avoid some of the windy weather. And as you're going to find out, 
everything's taking so long that before long they're going to be caught up in, in a time when no one should be sailing the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul has proven himself both to be a friend, he's also trustworthy, and number three, we're going to see that he is wise. Number three, he is wise. So let's, let's keep moving here in verse four. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of, of Cyprus, you can see on the map there, because the winds were against us. So the, the idea of getting behind an island to protect yourself from the wind, uh, verse five, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. So now they are changing boats. They were on a smaller vessel. They're getting on a larger boat. We're going to find out there were 276 people on this boat. This had a lot of people. And by the way, that matches the time period. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian from the same time, about four years later or so, he took a boat to Rome with 600 passengers on it as well. So it was not uncommon for there to be hundreds of passengers on these grain ships that were taking things really from Egypt up to Rome at the time. So they switch boats uh, and they get on this new boat in Myra, verse 6. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, sailing for Italy, so it's sailing for Rome, and they put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, uh, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them to just stop there. The, the, the fast is the Jewish Day of Atonement. If this is happening in the fall of A.D. 59, which is a good guess, then that would have been October 5th that the, that the Day of Atonement would have happened on. So this is now moving into mid-October. Now, in the Mediterranean Sea, it is dangerous to sail in October. But it is unacceptable to sail between mid-November and, say, February. It, nobody is doing that. No, no one goes out to say, you winter somewhere. You, you, you hear that language in the Bible, come to me before winter, or we're going to winter here, because people are not going to be sailing the Mediterranean between December, January, February. That, that's just, that is not okay. But they're already getting into a place where the, where, the, where the weather is becoming more questionable, and they end up in a place called Fair Havens. If you look at the screen here, this is zeroing in on that particular island, uh, of, uh, island of Crete. You can see here on the, uh, on the southern coast, you have uh, Fair Havens is right here, where the blue circle is, and they're trying to make their way over to Phoenix, which is over here, following that red uh, line. That's their goal, and they're going to try to figure out if that's a wise course or not. So look with me back at verse, into verse 9. Paul advised them saying, so this is Paul's wisdom on display. Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor, that is Fair Havens, was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So we're talking about a relatively short journey by boat to go from Fair Havens to Phoenix. But Paul, does Paul know something about sailing? You're like, well, not really. No, he, he does. He's already written 2 Corinthians when this happens. And if you've read 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25, Paul says, yeah, I was beaten with rods, I've been whipped, I've been all the… Three times I was 
Shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent adrift at sea. I don't know if you ever pause on Paul's list of his sufferings. You should just take one of the things on the list and just spend a few minutes just thinking about what that means. Just take any of them. But take this one. Okay, he's been shipwrecked three, three times. It would take one shipwreck, and I think I'm done with boats. I'm just done. One of those, you, you could easily die. I'm not the greatest swimmer in the world. Uh, yeah, I would be in trouble, okay? I'd be in big trouble. I'd be hanging off your back if we were going into the water. I'd be in trouble. So Paul, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. Maybe he had a piece of the wreckage, and he's just sitting there in the, in the waters, floating for a night and a day before he is somehow rescued or makes his way to shore. Does Paul know the dangers, especially in the Mediterranean Sea? He does. He may, be a, he may be a guy in chains, and he may be more of a theologian, but he really does understand the dangers of, of what is going on here. And he says, listen, guys, the risk is the risk of our lives, not just cargo, but of life, and it is not worth it. I know that it would maybe be more convenient uh, to do it the other way, but I think this is unwise. Now, I get why the centurion may not want to go with Paul. For all he knows, is a guy in chains. He's listening to the captain, the owner of the ship, he, the majority we always know the majority is always right, right? So he listens to the majority of the people, and out of the 276 people, the majority say, no, we should go. It's a much better port. And the, the reasons for this probably are, number one, convenience, why they want to move. Number two, it is not impossible. Greed could be a factor. The, the, the ship, uh, they want to get this ship to Rome as quick as possible so they can make money with the grain that they're trying to trade. They don't want to get, they don't want to get themselves in too much trouble. And number three, the, the majority, the crowd is against him. But Paul is using wisdom and uh, he is not swayed and he, he's actually correct in what he says. So uh, we'll go now to verse 13 and uh, we'll pick up with our fourth point of the sermon. So this is Paul is storm-tossed, which is going to be uh, really, for the rest of the message, but for storm toss begins in just a moment. Verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, we get the word typhoon from that Greek word, uh, a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. So if you look back at the screen, that large gray arrow coming down, that's the northeaster, this, this large amount of wind that comes down suddenly, all unexpectedly, and they are blown immediately off course. And instead of heading to Phoenix, uh, they begin immediately traveling out this way. And they're going to actually go by this little island right here called Kata, which you'll hear in just a second. So they're, they're heading down in that direction. Look with me at verse 15. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kata, that little island at the bottom left of your screen. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground uh, on the surface, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Now, just pause here for a moment. They had a little, almost like a lifeboat that would hang off the back of the boat that would allow them to get in and out of port. They could get on the boat if they needed to, to get on and off the boat. That boat is out behind their boat, the, the, the smaller boat. And uh, they have no way of pulling it in in the storm. So when they get behind this little island of Kata, they have a little reprieve from the wind. The island is blocking some of the wind. So they have a moment, and the sailors begin pulling on this, this rope, and they pull the boat up, and they get it back up on the, on the ship, and um, they also are able to undergird the ship. So what this means is they would take large, long, heavy ropes, and they would begin to put them over the bow of the ship. They would run them down the ship, and they would tie them on either side of the ship. So these ropes would go underneath the boat, and they would hold the boat together during stormy weather. So they would have numerous heavy, long, large ropes that they would put around the boat to undergird it to try to keep water from getting in or from the ship 
uh, from breaking up in the midst of this storm. Look with me at verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Okay, now we are obviously dealing with a real, literal storm, but I'm talking more metaphorically about storms in the Christian life. And there's just uh, five quick things. You don't have to write these down. Just listen to these quickly here. Uh, Storms, number one, are believers exempt from the storms of life? Are believers in Jesus? No. Being a child of God, being adopted into the family of God, being washed by the blood of Christ does not exempt us from the storms of this life. In some cases, it may actually increase the storms someone may face. So, believers are not exempt from storms even when the storms are not our fault. Was it Paul's fault that they tried to do what they did and got blown off course? No, Paul is sitting there going, guys, I was trying to tell you. I mean, how how many… Paul, if you would have taken my advice, which he'll mention later. So, it was not Paul's fault, but still he's involved in the storm. Number two, storms can arise suddenly. Uh, Again, this is not just in weather patterns, but uh, Scott was mentioning this in Sunday school just a minute ago. Um, You know, many of us have had a phone call that dramatically changed our lives. Comes out of the blue. Something that you do not see coming, you do not expect. Storms can arise suddenly. You could be having what seems like a great week, month, or year of your life or longer, and all of a sudden the economy crashes. And suddenly, what do you have left? Or all of a sudden, uh, you know, something dramatic happens. We, we knew a family where their house burned down suddenly a few years ago. And th- these unbelievable trials that just come over you that, that happen out of the blue. So we should be ready in the calm days to know that storms could happen, and we need to be ready having our roots deep in the Lord for when those days come. Number three, storms can force us to confront our mortality and to think more seriously about eternity. I mean, how many of you have had a moment where there might have been a near-death experience of some kind, whether it was you were really sick or you were almost in a car accident or you were in an accident and it could have been much worse than it was, and you face death. You, you look death really in the eye, and there's this moment where you're not sure how things are going to go for you personally or someone you deeply care about. In those moments, in those storms, we are forced to, conf- to, to, to deal with our mortality and with eternity. And In those moments, the Lord often works deeply in our life to get us off transient and temporal things and to fix our eyes on what is is not temporary, what is eternal, like Paul says, not on what is transient. Number four, storms sometimes compel unbelievers to consider God more seriously. You see in verse 29 that that the unbelievers uh, on the boat prayed for day to come. Now, I grant you, they're probably praying to the wrong gods. They're probably praying to the Roman gods. But still, Trials and storms make you turn towards God and hopefully towards the true God in the midst of storms. And finally, God sometimes miraculously stills the storms. Certainly that happened with the disciples in the Sea of Galilee. Is that normally what happens, that there's a miracle that just takes the trial away? Sometimes it's not wrong to pray and ask for the Lord to take away an illness or things like that, certainly. But it is also very often the case that the Lord, instead of taking the storm away, gives us the strength and the grace to endure the storm all the way to the end. And the Lord is so often at work in our life, uprooting idols, exposing lack of faith and trust, and securing and deepening uh, our trust in His promises as He goes about that. So, Paul is storm-tossed. Number five, back to the main points of the sermon, Paul is bold. 
Look with me at verse 21. Paul is bold. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, just pause there. Now, you you can't help but hearing a little bit of an I told you so here, but that's not quite what Paul's doing. Okay, he's not being mean-spirited and saying, Guys, I told you so. That's not his purpose in saying that. Paul is simply trying to say, hey guys, I'm about to tell you some further instruction and you can trust what I'm about to say because I was right last time. When we had the majority decision, I was in the minority and I made a decision and guess what? What I said was true. You can trust what I'm about to say to you in just a moment. So Paul uh, is bold. He found the right moment to speak up with boldness. And so with us, it's not, we have to be sensitive about when to say what we're supposed to say right? There are, there are wrong times and right times to say certain things, but we need to find the door of opportunity, the right moment, and to seize those opportunities to speak up with clearness and with boldness about what we need to say in a particular situation. So, Paul knows when to speak up boldly and when to do it at the right time. Number six, Paul is trusting. And this is verses 22 to 26. Paul is trusting. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Paul's faith here is in no way based on his circumstances. And we we cannot say this too many times. Faith is not believing God um, against the evidence that He exists or the, against the evidence of Christ's resurrection. It's not against those things. But faith is so often trusting what we hear from God versus what our eyes see in front of us. In the midst of a storm in life, it can be very hard to believe that God is good, that this is working for my good, that God loves me, that God cares about me, that God is merciful and faithful, abounding in, in, in steadfast love, that, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. It can be extraordinarily difficult to believe that down in the depths of our heart in the midst of a storm. But Paul right now is not basing his faith on what he sees. What he sees is darkness, fear. He sees panic with the sailors. He sees no hope. Even the seasoned sailors say that there's no hope. Everyone thinks that we are not going to make it out of this alive. But Paul has a word from the Lord. He has a promise from the Lord. And we today, we're not looking for new promises from the Lord. We're looking at the old trusted promises in His Word, and we can bank everything on the promises of God. Uh, Jerry, over the years, has had a sheet of paper, I guess it's a whole bunch of sheets of paper, that is a, uh, a list of promises from God. He may have given you a copy. I don't know. Some of you probably have received a copy of this thing uh, from, from Jerry. Every year, the quality of the copies goes down because <laughs> there's more coffee stains and things like that on this paper. But Jerry has this, this collection of papers that has, I don't know, do you know how many promises were on there? Over a hundred, probably. Uh, promises throughout the whole Bible to God's people. And when he's discouraged, or if you're discouraged, you should get a hold of something like that and just read them. Just read the, the promises of God and allow it to change your attitude, your perspective, Allow it to shape the way that you feel and think about all the chaos 
that is going on in your life. Let's be honest here. Now, some of you I know better than others. Some of you I probably don't know even at all. I haven't even met all of you probably. But if we were to truly know all the struggles, the pain, the uncertainty, and the trials going on amongst everybody in this room right now, I think it would be, frankly, emotionally overwhelming. I don't think we could handle the trials of even three of us in this room, all that's happened in the last year, all that we've gone through, all that we've struggled with. It would be, it would be truly hard to fully grasp and to even be able to understand fully. The Lord is strong enough, He is faithful enough, that in the midst of all the storms of life, He can be a rock of refuge, a very present help in trouble. What does the psalmist say? Therefore, we will not fear, though the mountains give way, though the, though the mountains tremble and fall into the heart of the sea. The God of Jacob is in our midst. He will not let us stumble. And then it says, behold, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We can trust that this God is with us in the dark. And let me just add a word of gospel here. The reason we know God is with us in the dark is because Jesus was abandoned by His Father in the dark. Because Jesus was abandoned by God in the darkness of Calvary during those three endless hours of darkness from noon until 3 p.m., we know that He will never leave His people or forsake us. If God forsakes you, then that means the gospel is a lie. Because on the cross, God, all the forsaking that ever needs to happen already happened. Jesus took the abandonment of God with our sin so that if we turn and trust in Christ, it is a guarantee that God will not require double punishment. This is not double jeopardy where you get the same, you know, the same sins are punished twice. No, this is, they are punished in Christ for those who know Him, and God will never, can never, it is unthinkable that God would abandon one of His own since Christ bore that abandonment for us. And we need to let our roots sink down deep into those truths in the midst of difficulty. Let me just say very briefly on this. This, is, uh, this could be a much longer point. If you read this chapter, it is almost overwhelming how many place names Luke includes and the kind of details for what the sailors are doing and what all is happening with the boat in this time of year and the kind of boat that they're in and how the boat moves and how it reacts in relationship to an island versus the mainland and how it works in the midst of a storm and what seasoned sailors do in the midst of a storm. It, it is astonishing. There was a guy in the 1800s who was skeptical about this, and he went and did intense investigation. He actually lived on the island of Malta for a year in the winter to try to figure out what that would actually be like. So he actually went there for a number of months. He did an enormous amount of research. He published a book that's become extremely famous about all this, and he said it is unbelievable the accuracy of the details that Luke includes in this story. This is not something you could sit down in a, in a room and make up. You can't. The amount of details here, the geography and the understanding of all that's happening is unbelievably accurate in the details. And so you're seeing here, again, we can trust this God. His Word is trustworthy. Okay, point number seven in the sermon. Paul is active. And this is, let's start here in verse 27. Paul is active. When the 14th night had come, can you imagine that? two weeks. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors, suspecting that they were nearing land, they were suspecting that we were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, that's 120 feet deep. A little farther on they took a sounding and found 15 fathoms, that's 90 feet deep. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. 
And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Now, just pause there. So the sailors say, hey, we're going to let down some more anchors to kind of slow this boat down. And they go up to the front of the, they go up to the, the boat and they take this little boat and they're lowering it down off the side of the boat, this almost like a lifeboat. They're lowering it down under pretense. They say that they're letting down anchors. They're not. They're lying. They're trying to save their own necks here. So they, they lower that down. They're going to get down into that boat and they're going to try to escape. Now, Chances are they would not do well in that little boat in the midst of the storm, much less on this larger boat. But if they leave, everyone else is going to be in trouble because you need seasoned sailors to try to get this boat as close to land as possible before there is any shipwreck. So how does Paul respond? Look with me back at verse 31. Again, the point here is Paul is active. We'll explain here what happens. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, so Paul sees what's happening, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat." Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Uh, We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Okay, this point is a little bit confusing. Are you ready? Are you ready to hang with, try to hang with this point? Okay, so this this is difficult to explain, and it's difficult to understand, but I do think it's taught clearly in this passage. This is interesting to me. You have two things that seem to be in contradiction or intention in this story. Number one is, if you look back at verses 22 and 24, God promised how many people are going to die in this shipwreck or in the, in the, on this boat. How many people are going to die? Zero people. So God promises through an angel to Paul at night, no one is going to die. The ship is going to be wrecked. Not a single one of the 276 people are going to die. That's a promise from an angel, ultimately from God. A promise from God. No one's going to die. Well, you would think, well, if Paul knows for sure zero people are going to die, then just get your lemonade and kick back. Just, this is going to be fun to watch. You know, no one's going to die no matter what. We're just going to sit back on the boat and just see what happens, and somehow we'll all end up on the shore. But Paul is not passive in his faith. He believes God's promise that no one's going to die, but he's also active along with his faith. His faith does not make him lazy. Well, God's going to do what he's going to do. God's sovereign. He can do what he wants. He's made promises. He's going to do it no matter what. My actions don't matter in the equation. That's not true. Paul knows that his actions are part of the way in which God sovereignly gets his will done. So Paul's actions actually count in the grand scheme of things. Look at verse 31. This is amazing to me. So the guys are trying to put the the lifeboat down in the water. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, look at this, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, wait a second, Paul. God just said last night through an angel that no one is going to die. That means no one is going to die. And Paul says, if they let that boat down and they get in that boat and they leave, they're going to die. People are going to die. Okay, I don't think this is a lapse of faith in Paul. I think this is one of these moments where it's so clear the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So in other words, God's sovereignty isn't magical. God gets things done. He, he, God gets his ends and his goals accomplished, which in this story, the goal is that no one dies, right? Is that going to happen because God said so? Yes, there's no doubt about it. Okay, 
So then why does Paul say, if they leave, people will die? And the answer is, that's, that's actually true, by the way. If they would have left, people would have died. I think Paul is telling the truth there. Did God ordain not just the ends that no one die, but also the means that Paul would warn people to prevent them from leaving so that people would not die? Are both of those things true? See, that's where I think I lost myself, okay? So think of it this way. Applying this to the doctrine of election, I think, is a beautiful way. These things go together so well. Has God chosen His bride, a certain select number of people, before the foundation of the world in Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, in Him we were chosen before the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13, it says, those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, right? I mean, you've got here absolute certainty. Before the world was spun into orbit, God has His elect people. Does that mean whether you evangelize or not is, is unimportant? No. Does it matter whether you pray for the lost? Does that become unimportant? No, because God doesn't just use magic. He doesn't just do things. God, if He has a goal, an end that He wants to reach, that He's promised to reach, He's going to use your real human means to accomplish those ends. And so, you, you know, maybe you have a story where you felt burdened to pray for a roommate of yours who's not a Christian. You've all heard different versions of stories like this. That you feel this burden, and you begin praying and pleading for your roommate to come to know Christ. And this goes on for a period of time, and you share the gospel with your roommate, and they don't care. And time goes on and on, and eventually they become more softened to the gospel, and eventually they get converted. Okay. Had God chosen that person before the foundation of the world in Christ? I mean, if we even believe the Bible at all, that's got to be true. Does that mean your prayers didn't matter at all in the equation? No, because God ordains the ends and the means to the ends. And so, who put that burden on your heart? Why do you care about your lost coworker? Where's that coming from? Is that coming from me? That's coming from the Holy Spirit, burdening me, right, with that. And I begin to express that. I begin, it's like Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You do that because God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. As God uh, works through Paul here, Paul gives a real warning that is going to be heeded and is going to lead to what God has promised in the end. Let, let me give one more illustration of this. In the book of Jude, my guess is a lot of us know the, the wonderful doxology at the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, be honor. Y'all have heard that, right? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Okay, that's the end of the book of Jude. That's verses 24 and 25. The first verse of the book of Jude is like a bookend. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So do you see God is keeping us? to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faithful, and at the beginning, you're kept by God for Jesus. Okay, that's, those are the bookends of Jude. In the middle, this is what Jude commands. This sounds amazing to me. In the middle of Jude, Jude 20, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. What? Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, do you feel the tension here between these different statements? God's keeping you for Jesus. He's going to keep you to eternity. You're, no one can snatch you out of His hand. And in the middle, keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, I think the Lord uses means to accomplish His ends. And for those who are truly God's people, the Lord is going to keep you faithful to the end. What makes you wake up in the morning and again want to spend time in the Lord's presence? 
Is that the Lord keeping you? Yes. What gives you that desire to want to unload your heart before the Lord? Is that coming from the Lord keeping you? Yeah, what gives you a desire to sing his praises, to be moved to tears by the gospel? That's the Lord keeping you. And guess what? Your actions in that are not irrelevant. It's not like they don't matter. Uh, the, the Lord keeps you and, and he works in you in such a way by his spirit that you also are working out your salvation with fear and trembling while he is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So uh, last thing about this particular point, the warnings in the Bible work the same way. Do you know how many warnings there are addressed to church people in the Bible? Paul will say to a church, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, or Galatians chapter, uh, chapters 5 and 6. The works of the flesh are evident. Those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? You see, those warnings for a true believer, when they hear those warnings, those warnings are true. If, if, if you get into sin and just live for sin for the rest of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom. That's true for anybody in this room. If you devote yourself to idols and sin without repentance and faith, and you live and immerse yourself in sin for the rest of your life, you will not be saved. That's absolutely true for anybody. That's true of anybody. Now, those warnings are true. For the false believer, it may become evident that they're not a true believer. But for the true believer, those warnings should create a holy fear that I don't want to go away from my Lord. I don't want to get away from my Lord. I, I don't want to go that direction. I want to stay near Him. And the warnings actually create the obedience to not violate the warning for the true believer. So the Lord uses the warnings that are true and real to keep His people faithful to Him. I mean, just, just as an anecdote, just thought of, um, I remember my dad preaching on Hebrews 10, which is a frightening warning. It's where, it's where Jonathan Edwards got the name, Sinners in the Hands of angry, angry God. It comes from Hebrews 10, how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Like, did Edwards make that up? No, that comes from the Bible. <laughs> so, that, that, my dad just preached on Hebrews 10, which is a massive warning passage to professing Christians that if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire of those who will, who, that will consume the adversaries. At the end of that sermon, I remember having tears in my eyes, and I remember thinking, Lord, please keep me faithful. I don't ever want to fall away from you. The warning was used by God to keep me in the faith. Okay, we will move on now to uh, number eight. So that point was, again, Paul is active even though he's also trusting God at the same time. Number eight, exemplary. I'll just say this point briefly. Is Paul, is his conduct slightly different from the conduct of almost everyone else on this boat? Everyone else is terrified. Paul says, do not fear. Everyone else is too scared to eat. Paul is standing up, setting an example, eating food, saying we need strength so we can make it to shore. Come on, guys, let's do this. Paul is setting an example. His faith in God makes him differ from those around him. And I just want to read real quick from Philippians 2. Right after that part about working out your salvation, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Paul is shining like a light in this dark moment, in this storm, because of how different his character and his actions are from those around him. All right, the last point. Paul is owned, number nine. You say, where do you, where do you get that from? Or let's go back to verse 23. Paul is owned. Verse 23. Paul says, for this very night, 
there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. So he says, I belong to someone else. I've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, do not dishonor God with your body. You were bought with a price, so honor the Lord with your body. Paul says, my whole identity is wrapped up in Christ. I am in Christ. My life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is my life, appears, I also will appear with him in glory. Christ is my life. Uh, He's the one that lived for me. He's the one that died for me. He is the one that I am completely indebted to. One pastor said, "We we we are, in this sense, we are like a bride to her groom. We are loved and cherished by Christ. We are like a sheep to its shepherd a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We are like a child to his father, deeply loved at great cost to himself. And uh, think about this. This whole story is unbelievably involved, unbelievably difficult, unbelievably painful. One pastor pointed this out to me. I thought this was helpful. We tend in life to be objective-oriented, and God is more process-oriented. We just want to get to Rome. Like, Lord, why months of delay and weeks in shipwreck? Like, why? Just get me to Rome. Just let me get married. Just let me have my first kid. Just let me have a house. Just let me have this job. Just let me, let me, let me. We're object-oriented. Just get me to the goal. I'll be happy when I get there. Until then, my happiness is going to be in question. But once I come around that next corner in the road, the grass will be greener. Everything's going to be greater. We're object-oriented. And if Paul would have thought that way, he would have been in big trouble on this journey. But the Lord is process-oriented. The Lord is at work shaping and molding our character in the midst of the storms of life. And let's close by seeing how this story wraps up. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern, the back of the boat, was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, look at the providence of God, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So you see here again, God's providence. He steps in where they were about to kill some people. Hey, if the soldiers get in the water, they could escape. We as Roman soldiers, excuse me, as the prisoners, if the prisoners get in the water, they could escape. We as soldiers could lose our lives. Let's go ahead and kill the prisoners so we don't risk our own lives. And because the centurion liked Paul, he said, don't do that. We're not going to kill anybody right now. And again, do you see the providence of God using a means to fulfill his promised ends that no one will die? So you see again here God's incredible providence in the midst of this thing. And it ends by saying, so it was that all were brought safely to land. Please bow your head with me just for a moment. I want to give you just a brief moment to pray just in the quietness of this moment. If the Lord has in any way impressed anything on your heart, uh, if there's any particular part of this message that you feel like you need to deal with the Lord regarding, just take a brief moment and speak to Him, and then I will pray with us, pray for us.
Heavenly Father, it is so often true that in the darkness of the storms of life, Your light in us can shine very brightly. Lord, I pray for those who are going through particularly turbulent times in life right now. I am sure that there are a number in this room who are going through, whether known or unknown, uh, significant trials. And Lord, I pray that You would help them to have great faith in You, great trust that shows itself in some of these characteristics that Paul demonstrated in this chapter. Lord, I pray that others would be intrigued by that light, that they would be even one to that light, that people would see our good deeds, and that they would give glory to You in heaven, that we would let our light shine before men. And God, I pray that You would be at work in a great way. I pray for unbelievers who are also in the storms of life, that You would awaken them to eternity, that You would show them their need for the Lord Jesus and for the gospel of Christ, and that You would draw them savingly to Yourself, and that You would, again, use us even in that process, as mysterious as that is, that You would use our evangelism and our prayers to reach those who do not yet know You, and that You would win uh, Your people to Yourself. We pray this for Your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.